Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, which is your will being done on earth as it is in heaven. The Lord's Prayer is not just a lesson on prayer. It's a pattern for life. Because Jesus' message was all about what he called the good news of the kingdom of God. It was all about his kingdom coming. And what we are doing as we move into our next step, sort of our adolescent step as a church, is without losing who we are as a church, reimagining what God could do, if we began to think of ourselves as agents for his kingdom here on earth now, that his mission for us is not just to make sure as many people as possible go to heaven when they die, but it's about bringing the kingdom now. Your kingdom come, which means your will being done on earth as it is in heaven. So consistent with Jesus' whole message, what his whole gospel was about. It was indeed about saving people for all of eternity, sins forgiven, new life being bought and purchased, but it was so much bigger. And so the verse that we've been working off of over these weeks and we're going to use as our theme passage for this year is from Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. Once again, I ask you to say it with me. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of our Lord's favor. At that moment in his hometown in the synagogue in Nazareth, Jesus used this messianic prophecy of the coming of the reign of Christ, which is what that last phrase is, the, the year of our Lord's favor. It was the coming of the reign of God. Jesus said, this has been fulfilled today, and his message never deviated from that. And when he finished his work of redemption on the cross, even in those 40 days after the, the resurrection, when he was preparing his followers for the next stage of God's plan on earth, what is it that... Luke records in the book of Acts he was teaching on the kingdom, the kingdom. It wasn't just an evangelism seminar. It was about extending the kingdom of God. What did the followers of Jesus preach as they went out? They preached the good news of the kingdom of God. That's our mission Last week, we spent some time looking at what the kingdom of God really is and where is it. If, in fact, it did come and Jesus said so, then where is it? The reality is we still live in a broken world. We all, including Christians, still suffer the results of sin. We suffer the physical mortality and the corruptibility and illness, and we are still those with a broken moral compass. We still make miserable decisions, all of us routinely. It's why we desperately need grace every day. Where is the kingdom? If this picture was fulfilled then in some way, what is it? And we saw how the Hebrew mind thought of it. They thought of the old age 
where sin and death reign because of man's fall as ending abruptly in the coming of a king, ushering in this new age to come where all of sin and injustice and death would be put away, where Israel would be restored to its glory and the rest of the world would be judged for its immorality and its sin. But it was a very exclusive picture. They missed this picture, which is what the prophets actually saw and what Jesus spoke of, that the king would come, but he would first come as a suffering servant. Isaiah saw him as the one who, by his wounds and by his being crushed for our iniquities, we are healed, ultimately healed. Often today that's used to speak about physical healing, but what Isaiah is speaking about is the great healing of our souls, the great disease of sin and death. What Jesus was preaching was consistent with what the prophets actually saw. When he said, I have come and this has been fulfilled, it had come. The age to come had come. But now we are in both worlds. And there will yet come a day. Christ will return ultimately as king and then finally and forever the old age will be done away. This corruptible will put on incorruptible. There will be a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem and new creations forever restored. It's a beautiful picture. But that's in the future. In the meantime, we're in this gap. We say Christ has come. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. We're in between His comings. And we are citizens of the kingdom of God living in the kingdom of this world. See, That's who we are. There was a movie just a couple of years ago that, that came out called Upside Down, I think it was called. Uh, how many of you saw that movie? There's two worlds caught and upside down from each other, identical otherwise, except for class struggle, which is what the movie's about, but that's not what this illustration's about. And the gravity of each world pulls in opposite directions. I thought, what a great illustration of, of what we live in as citizens of the kingdom of God. If you surrendered your life to Jesus Christ as your Savior and as your Lord, you have been reconciled to God. And where you are, to the degree that you are surrendered to Jesus, His kingdom is. He reigns. We are citizens of that kingdom but the world we live in pulls us in a completely different direction. The gravity from the kingdom of God pulls us upward, pulls us towards God, pulls us towards light, pulls us towards the life we were meant for. But the world we live in has a different gravity. It's pulling us down constantly. Its aim is death and destruction and injustice, spiritual captivity. It's no wonder that theologians have talked about the kingdom of God in today's reality as an upside-down kingdom because the very ideas of the kingdom of God are counterintuitive to the kingdom of man. And how could they not be? In the kingdom of God, He reigns. His rules, His priorities are what we are to live in. And like in any kingdom, some of the rules are there simply because it's what the king wants. They don't have to make sense to us. They don't have to be popular in the culture around us. It's just the way the king said things ought to be. 
And if we're going to honor that king, we're going to live by those rules. But all of the decrees of that king pull us upward, pull us towards and into a greater life, a greater glory, a greater experience of God, which is what we were all meant for. But inside us, because of our broken moral compass, we call that our sin nature, our inner nature pulls us down. Its gravity goes in the other direction. And we need to learn to be citizens of the kingdom of God. Make no mistake, we are not dual citizens of the upside-down kingdoms. No dual citizenship. We are citizens of the heavenly realm. And our call is to seek the kingdom of God above all else. That's what Jesus said. The phrase you might be more familiar with is, seek ye first the kingdom of God. This is a more contemporary language, but it's accurate. Seek first God's kingdom above everything else. And what we've learned is that God's kingdom is not about territory. God's kingdom is about rulership and reign. And so what he's really saying, if we understand the Greek language there, Basileia, is our job here on earth is to seek first the reign of God, both in our lives and in the lives of the world around us. Excellent little book by Donald Crable entitled The Upside Down Kingdom. He defines the kingdom with that idea of where God reigns, there is the kingdom. He defines it this way. The kingdom of God is a collectivity, a network of persons who have yielded their hearts and relationships to the reign of God. So, think about this. How do we extend the kingdom? How do we build the kingdom, which is our mission here on earth, at the heart of which is the transforming message of the gospel? How do we build the kingdom here on earth? We do it collectively. When we come together, this is a place where Christ reigns. And the more people turn their hearts to God, the rule of God expands. And the social order, as described in Luke chapter 4, begins to emerge. Because we're not thinking about just escaping just hanging in here in a dark earth waiting for the kingdom to come. No, we're to bring the kingdom now. Our job is not a perfect job because until this age is done away, it will never be fully done. Next week we'll look at how we're called to bring these different aspects of God's favor that Luke 4 talks about. We'll talk about strategically what that means for the church at large, for us as a church and how that should impact our vision for this city and beyond. But there is no hope of us bringing the kingdom if we ourselves are not radically committed to the reign of God. See, the mission of the church is not just a strategy or a program. It's us. And so the first thing we have to talk about is what it means for us to be seekers of the kingdom ourselves, to recognize our citizenship. I want you to turn with me to a familiar passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Here in this passage is an excellent commingling of the transformative, eternal idea of the gospel 
making us new creations, the restricted but very true and meaningful expression of the gospel. But then he expands it with this idea of kingship and citizenship and ministry. 2 Corinthians 5. Uh, let's start at verse 16. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. What does he mean by a worldly point of view? He's referring to the old age. The culture in which we live, it's our job to stop looking at people through that lens. We don't do that anymore. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us now that ministry of reconciliation. Let's just pause there. The concept of reconciliation is a broadening concept with relation to the gospel. Two weeks ago, I talked about three aspects that have to do with the kingdom coming. We talked about redemption, reconciliation, and restoration. Far too often, Christians focus only on the first aspect of the kingdom, which is redemption. If anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And all that's possible because of the sacrificial work of Jesus paying the debt for sin and making it possible for us to become new people. But Paul reminds us that that recreation is not just for our own good, and it isn't just for a clean start. It's to reestablish a relationship that sin made no longer possible in our lives. We have been reconciled to God in Christ. So reconciliation is a second and strategic aspect of what it means to be children of God. But it's not just our reconciliation. God reconciled us to Himself in Christ. It's the reconciliation of people all around us. And He has given us, Paul says, that ministry of reconciliation. But now reconciliation takes on an even bigger reality that is bigger than you and I and all Christians everywhere could possibly do. It's the ultimate reconciliation that will be God's, but it's our job to to bring that reconciliation as much as possible to the world. And that's, as Colossians 1 says, the reconciliation of all things to Himself through Christ. All things, heaven, on earth, under the earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or powers, rulers or dominions. See, all these things, all these things through Christ will ultimately and is in the process of bringing all that reconciliation to him. And now we go on in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If our work is to be part of this great reconciliation, uh, let's look at verse 20. We are therefore ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Verse 21 reminds us that it's all about the redemptive work of Christ that drives us first to becoming new creations, which allow us to reconnect with the life-giving relationship with God that was meant to be at the heart of our experience that then drives us out to bring that reconciling work to others and we're going to learn next week to be a part of the great and ultimate reconciliation of society and creation to the reign of God. We're citizens of a far kingdom and what are we here? We're ambassadors to this kingdom. We're not citizens. 
So, how do we become ambassadors for Christ? Well, it, it begins by becoming seekers of the kingdom ourselves. We need to be able to say, this space, this heart, this soul, this mind, this spirit, this body, in here, Christ reigns. It begins there. And that's what we're going to talk about this week. We are to be seekers of the kingdom of God. I mentioned a book that I would highly recommend you read by Alan Wakabayashi entitled Kingdom Come. I'm actually going to draw today uh, from one of his chapters three things that are important for us to be seekers of the kingdom of God, surrendered to the kingdom of God. So the first one by the way, it's, it's A-I-M. The word is aim. In other words, we set the trajectory of our lives as those that are seeking the kingdom around these three priorities. And the first one that he talks about is allegiance. Allegiance. One of the things I need to come to terms with is that Jesus is my king. I am here to fulfill his dream for my life, not mine. You know, a lot of us bring Jesus into our life because we think it's a winning strategy. <laughs> we come to Jesus with our life plans, most of us, very much in place. In other words, your dreams, your plans, your priorities, your choices, I think that's called your kingdom. And what you're doing is asking God to be a subservient to your kingdom because you're on the throne of your plans and your dreams. I'm going to tell you, that strategy will not work. It will not work. Jesus will greatly disappoint you. Furthermore, your plans and purposes are not what will bring you ultimate fulfillment. God's plans and purposes are. You were made, as Bob Dylan, to show my age here, as Bob Dylan said, you were made to serve somebody might be the devil, might be the Lord. It's one kingdom or the other. But you're going to serve somebody. You know why? Because we were created to serve something. We think it's all about personal liberty. It's not. It's just a question of who you're serving. Did Jesus come to serve us? Serve our needs and desires? No. He came to give us life abundant, which is found in surrendering ourselves to His purposes and His priorities. So, where that needs to work its way down to, college students, young adults, is your career path, the choices you're making. How many of you are undeclared yet with your major? Any of you? Yeah. That's okay. You've got time. But it's a great opportunity for you to say, where does my role as a citizen of the kingdom of God fit into the choices I'm going to make? Some of you already declared your major. Let me ask you a question. Why did you declare that major? Was it because it was something you thought would make you happy? Was it because it's the best career path for a financial stability? And are those bad reasons to make decisions? Not necessarily, but Christ needs to come above those decisions. You need to make your career choices now based on the fact that you are first and foremost an ambassador for Christ. Everything you do, even your job, your career choices, ought to be about expanding the reign of Christ. And that means for a lot of us that are well down a course for our lives, 
to step back and ask, is this my agenda or God's? And how can I take what I'm currently doing and shift it under the reign of Christ so that everything I do is for His purposes? Or is it possible that I need to actually make a midlife shift? Right? Or for those of us that are beyond midlife. For me, middle age changes every year. I'm still middle-aged, which means I have to live to be 118 in order to be currently middle-aged. When do we stop evaluating our course? Because the pull of this world, the gravity of this world is always telling us to seek ourselves, and the call of God is to seek His kingdom first. So it's about allegiance. And that, that leads us to the second idea here, and that's integration. Integration. If we're really about the kingdom of God, then we need to shatter this concept that there is a part of our life that is sacred and there's a part of our life that is secular. There's no such thing. That's dual citizenship. It's going to create a competition in your life and the kingdom of God will not be allowed to exist in your life and therefore you cannot possibly bring it to the world around you. You become pointless to God's purposes. There is no such thing as things in your life that are sacred and other things that are secular. I would venture that even though most of us understand that theoretically, our lives betray that we live very much with that distinction. When we think of the sacred things, what are the things that come to mind? Quiet time, church, life group, serving here and there. The things that we do that are specifically about God. Those disciplines, that little piece of our week that is about our spiritual life and our church is what we think of as the sacred. And then we don't integrate it into the rest of our lives. How we go about doing work. I I believe that generally Christians will cheat on their taxes, (laughs) lie at work, waste time at their work, be a part of coarse conversation in their neighborhood at roughly the same rate as most other people. Now, I'd love to be wrong about that, and I don't think I'm a pessimistic person. I think I'm generally an optimistic person. But I ask you, is every part of your life sacred? College students, you walk into classrooms where you are expected to think secularly. As God's children, I challenge you to make those spaces sacred. No, I don't mean stand up and do church. Even in your science classes, even in your math classes, even in your social studies classes, all those are opportunities for you to learn more about God, even if your professor and your classmates are working against it. Did you know learning is a great act of worship? Did you know all truth is God's truth? Everything you learn is a sacred thing. And it can deepen your relationship with God. You see how this works? If we really begin thinking about integration, how does God's rule in my life come to play in terms of my finances? Now I'm not preaching. I'm meddling, right? Talking about money again. Well, it's because none of it's yours. But you live like it is. It's God's to use. God's blessed us to bless others. And yet some of us have yet to really begin to give at the level we know we should. And I'm not just talking about church. Our life is about generosity. Everything we have is God's. It's His to use. It's sacred for Him. And we need to judge how we're spending our money, 
and how we're investing it, seeing it as sacred. How you spend it matters, and you need to seek the kingdom first. There's so many ways we could think in terms of integration. That's the constant discipline because that's where the other kingdom is constantly pulling us in the other direction. God's calling us constantly upward in all these areas. So I just mentioned a few things. My challenge to you is to begin to think of all that you do as sacred, an opportunity to see God, to grow, and to be used by God. It's about allegiance, it's about integration, and ultimately that leads us into mission. It leads us into mission. We are called to a holistic mission of reclaiming not only lost people, but a lost creation. If we understand that that's what Christ is about now, that's what God is about now, when Christ gave his parting words to his followers and began with all authority in heaven on earth, is mine. Therefore, go and make disciples. Let me paraphrase. Citizens, right? In Matthew 16, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom. What you loose on earth is loose. What you bind on earth is bound. The church, we who are the followers of God, are change agents for the kingdom of God everywhere we go. And we have kingdom authority. Next week is when we're going to really focus on that idea of mission. What I want to focus on is this idea of personal surrender. He is king. He does own us. We need to live in submission. Let your kingdom come in here because it's so easy even in how we do church. Church can be a great place for kingdom builders. I don't mean God's kingdom. I mean personal kingdom builders. I got to laugh at something here. Jessica, as you know, last week left us and one of Jessica's roles was to run our projection, our our, uh, visual ministry and Cody Womble has taken it over. Yay, Cody. So Cody wrote his first letter to his team. I thought you'd enjoy hearing it. Team, you probably haven't heard yet, but our fearless leader, Jessica, was moving on to greener pastures, someplace warm. An international vote was held, and I have been appointed the new world leader of the Journey Community Church's media team of the whole world, globally. That being said, there are going to be some subtle changes in the way we do things. Jessica was great, but she didn't run a tight ship like I will. (laughs) Firstly, we need to start acting superior to all the other members. Why do you think we sit so much higher up than everyone else? It's time to start looking down on others like we are meant to. Stilts would be administered to each of you. Secondly, back talk will no longer be tolerated. I am your boss now. You will do what you are told. My statue is being erected in front of the Worcester Tech as we speak. (laughs) Third, I expect you all to be in peak physical condition. Prior to every service, you will run the steps to the media booth no less than 156 times. Sweating is a sign of weakness and thus will not be tolerated. (laughs) And finally, you must become extremely well-versed in sarcasm. Otherwise, there is going to be a lot of confusion. (laughs) I love that. Now, Cody and, and Malia, Mrs. Womble, have two of the greatest servant hearts that I know. I honestly love them, and I can read this because Cody's just the opposite of this, and any of us who know him know that. 
I think it's funny. But actually, man, doesn't that happen in churches? We're going to do it my way. It's my ministry. I don't care how the leader wants to do things. This is how I've done it for years. I'm going to do it my way. Kingdoms, thrones in the church. How much better would it be if we were all just absolutely surrendered? There's only one king here, and it's not me either. (laughs) It's Christ. He rules everything. And he showed us the path to greatness. It was by becoming the servant of all. Yeah, we, by estimation of the world, are citizens of an upside-down kingdom. Everything about us says protect, build, care for, seek your priorities, be free. It's all about your liberty. That's our gravity to turn in towards ourselves rather than to reach up to God. And so the idea of this surrender, when I get specific, gets uncomfortable, doesn't it? You'd rather maintain that sacred little window and then go do your own thing. But God's kingdom will never come through you. And it'll never come through us if we aren't surrendered, if we aren't honestly crying as our Lord taught us to pray. Your kingdom come. Your will be done here as it is in heaven. Yeah, it is an upside-down kingdom. It was so opposite to what the world thought was the right way to live that when the early apostles came to various cities, the leaders would say of them, are these not those who have turned the world upside down? And that's exactly what God's kingdom is. In God's kingdom, the last are first. We give in order to receive. We become a servant of all to become the greatest. We die in order to live. And as Jesus said, we lose our very lives to him, taking up our cross. We lose ourselves in order that we may find life. So this is where we start. Right here, this space, these hearts, these lives. Christ needs to rule all. Good timing today that we're going to celebrate the Lord's table because it reminds us of the costly price that Christ paid in order to have that ownership of our lives. Before we go to prayer, let's say these words together. You do not belong to yourself, for you were bought with a high price, so honor God with your body. Father, for the great sacrifice, for the payment of our debt that only you could pay without our being lost and judged forever. We say thank you. We are so grateful. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the grace that is possible. Thank you for the favor that is ours. 
because of Christ. Thank you that we live because of his death. We have become the righteousness of God because he became our sin. Uh, He took our judgment so that we could be reconciled to you. Father, we thank you for that. And we celebrate with great joy. In Jesus' name, amen.